Welcome to Formation. This is our third gathering. Um, who's been coming? Who's come to all of the Formation this year? This year, sorry, this year. Yeah. Um, everybody who's been coming regularly enjoying this space? Yeah. It goes really quickly. Hey, like it's seven o'clock before we know it. Lots of really good things to talk about, lots of meaty conversations. Um, for those of you that are new, we this is our third gathering and um, we are endeavouring to unpack some theological idea, um, some having conversations around what we believe, what we've believed, what we don't believe, what we have questions about, um, probably more questions than answers in formation, which is a, a really good, I think, way of being because we... You know, we don't know everything and there's lots to learn about God, about ourselves and um, we all need to probably, I know for myself, relax a bit and realise that I don't know what I don't know but I'm very open and hopeful that what's coming up in my future understanding is always going to be good and challenging um, and mysterious and hopeful. So, um, so yeah, we have a... a session first, a conversation and a little bit of discussion and then we'll have a break, just a short break and then have a second session. Tonight's topic is God is dead or perhaps is God dead? Yeah, Nietzsche said way back, God is dead. Interesting comment, what was he talking about? What do we mean when we say that? Um, yeah, that's what Frosty's going to talk about tonight, fortunately. <laughs> Um, he asked me if I would um, open with something, but he only asked me about 20 minutes ago. So, oh, okay. so I raced off to my office and to see if I could find something inspira inspirational to read or to um, pray. And I, I looked through the, my Celtic prayer book and couldn't find anything that seemed suitable for tonight. But I did find something in the Lunig, Lunig cartoon book about God. So um, I'll read it out. Michael Lunig, yeah. Maybe we could just, just close our eyes. Take a moment. We're about to engage our brains and um, just have a little bit of... Oh, there's Nietzsche right there. Oh, gosh. Um, um, have a little bit of a moment where we can disengage ourselves from our day and, um, yeah, just prepare ourselves for the new, this new space and... Um, Ask God to speak to us in whatever way we need to hear. God, help us with ideas, those thoughts which inform the way we live and the things we do. Let us not seize upon ideas, neither shall we hunt them down nor steal them away. Rather, let us wait faithfully for them to approach, slowly and gently, like creatures from the wild. And let them enter willingly into our hearts and come and go freely within the sanctuary of our contemplation, informing our souls as they arrive and being enlivened by the inspiration of our hearts as they leave. These shall be our truest thoughts, our willing and effective ideas. Let us treasure their humble originality. Let us follow them gently back into the world with faith that they shall lead us to lives of harmony and integrity. 
Amen. Marco. Thanks, Linda. Hey there. Well, here we are. Formation. And uh, we are in a series that we called What on Earth Did Jesus Die For? And it's a... I guess a series of conversations and discussions around this event that really does sit at the heart of the Christian tradition uh, and yet continues to provoke thought and reflection and experience uh, and continues to in some way be a mystery to us even as it sits at the very centre of things. And um, the first formation, so a, a couple of times ago, um, we talked a bit about, oh, I'll put this up there. Um, we talked about some of the central metaphors, some of the central images that sit at, uh, that have been predominantly embraced by, by some within the Christian tradition uh, and the, as a way of framing an understanding of the meaning captured in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, um, and in particular, how around a lot of those ideas are associated with with the notion of Jesus' death as some kind of payment, whether it's a payment for our freedom from slavery or whether it's payment for our freedom from God's wrath. Um, so those are some of the main ways in which Christians at times have understood uh, the meaning of Jesus' death. And yet um, there are ways, there are, there's a sense in which those ways have been unhelpful and unhealthy in the certain versions which might have trickled through to some of us here and now. And so we've been trying to explore different ways of understanding what might be going on here and how that might be helpful for us sitting here in 2018 in New Zealand, modern slash postmodern people. Uh, what does this old bloody story have to do with us, really? Um, and so last time we talked a bit about this idea that the, the death and resurrection of Jesus was this kind of mystical reality that we enter into in some kind of way, that there's a, there's a naming of something fundamental about human experience and in fact about all of reality uh, and that we enter into it uh, and we uh, embrace that as a part of our journey. This time we, um, we want to, there's some similarity in some way between uh, the last session and this and that we're wanting to centre ourselves around this notion in particular of the death of Jesus uh, and what that confronts us with, what that tells us about God and our conceptions and our ideas of God and what that might mean for us uh, now. Um, so, God is dead. That's the title for today's conversation, as Linda mentioned earlier, and that's, um, it's a phrase that is, is kind of famous, but somewhat provocative, I suppose you could say. So we're going to try and... Uh, Approach this conversation in, in two particular ways, kind of in the first half of tonight and then in the second half. And so firstly, we want to look at the cross as, the, as a symbol of the death of God, or at least of certain ideas about God. Uh, and then in the second part of today, we want to talk about the idea of God being present in the death of Jesus and what that might mean for us. Is God present or absent? Um, how do we think about God in relation to suffering? So... That sounds like a fun time, eh? 
Um, all right. So, Western society, as we kind of know it, has been shaped by the Christian tradition. The, the church, uh, for a long time, had the monopoly over the discourse of Western society. Uh, the church dictated reality, the terms of reality to people. Uh, if we think about really post kind of fourth or fifth century, uh, when the church from being, went from being a marginal movement to becoming embraced by the empire, from that point onwards, really, Christianity uh, had a sense of power to it. Uh, the church was in control, we might say. It had the ability to uh, command the terms of someone's eternal destiny. Um, had the ability to command armies, power, uh, control. And it's not all bad, but in that sense, I don't mean to paint too negative a picture of it. But I think something that happened in the in the around the 16th, 17th century is that that power that power structure began to shift somewhat. So we had what's often referred to as the Enlightenment, uh, where this emergence of um, rationality within the Western consciousness, uh, Descartes' famous uh, realization or contemplation, "I think, therefore I am." which becomes, in a sense, the beginning of modern scientific method, which is doubt everything. And if I doubt everything, uh, what can I be left uh, with with certainty? And the one thing I can be left with is the fact that it is I that is doubting. So I think, therefore, I am. At least I know that I exist. And then work your way out from there. Doubt everything until you can test it and prove it and so on. And this kind of idea, if you like, uh, sets in motion a whole different kind of conversation that is not, in the end, controlled by the church in the same kind of way. And uh, what that begins to turn into is uh, the critique of many of the fundamental assumptions that the Christian church had provided for people. The church had said, this is the way things are. There is this God, there is this church, there is this uh, authority structure. This is what you should do. This is what it's about. Uh, But the emergence of modern science and rationality and reason Uh, began to throw up some serious questions to that whole system. Uh, Well, who's to say we should trust the Bible anyway? Maybe if we analyse it like any other history book, we'll find there's all sorts of flaws and problems with it. So stop waving that over our heads. And actually, maybe we've discovered that that human beings are um, uh, are here because we evolved rather than because God suddenly put put us in a garden. So these, these big challenges to the Christian narrative started to emerge. And um, it's in this kind of ferment, if you like, uh, amongst many other things, uh, that people like Hegel and uh, Nietzsche and others emerge with this kind of, uh, with this criticism, if you like, of the notion of God itself. Uh, and, and a recognition, if you like, that society had fu- was fundamentally changing. And so Nietzsche in particular is famous for this phrase, God is dead and we have killed him. Or God is dead, God remains dead and we have killed him. He's not the first to say that God is dead. Um, 
but he kind of caught on. I want to read you a little passage from Nietzsche. Do you feel like that? Uh, now he has a very, um, if you've ever, has anyone ever read Nietzsche? It's a, it's a pretty obscure business. So um, I don't pretend to have a, t- a handle on him, but at least we can, we can get a sense for uh, what's going on. And he, he, he often speaks through, through characters that he develops who, who then are involved in a story. The madman. Have you not heard of that madman who little lantern in the bright morning hours ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I am looking for God, I am looking for God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing together there, he excited considerable laughter. Have you lost him then, said one. Did he lose his way like a child, said another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage or emigrated? Thus they shouted and laughed. The madman sprang into their midst and pierced them with his glances. Where has God gone, he cried. I shall tell you. We have killed him, you and I. We are all his murderers. But how have we done this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving now? Away from all suns, are we not perpetually falling? Backward, sideward, forward in all directions. Is there any up or down left? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do not... Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is more and more night not coming on all the time? Must not lanterns be lit in the morning? Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we not smell anything yet of God's decomposition? God's too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, console ourselves? That which was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet possessed has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? With what water could we purify ourselves? And on uh, the madman goes. Um, I mean, Nietzsche is is notoriously difficult to to access in in many respects. Uh, And... At least a part of what Nietzsche is pointing towards at this particular time when he's writing is this recognition that um, there is emerging now this realization that there is no that we have we have realized there is no God that all of the ways in which um, we explain reality in the past through God now no longer are needed we don't need God to explain all of that anymore. Um, now, with that came a real sense of um, impending catastrophe for Nietzsche. Because he's, essentially he said the whole social and ethical fabric of the West is meshed with God and Christianity and the church and our beliefs, beliefs in God. Uh, and so if we take God out of that now, which we are doing, uh, what will then guide us? What will guide our behaviour? Now we are lost. Um, And he points forward with particular insight in many respects towards the unfolding condition of the West in the time since that, which is you remove God and certain claims about God that sit at the very heart of the whole ethical and moral system of society. And slowly that thing then begins to disintegrate and all sorts of things are justified. Um, for a while, Nietzsche descends into a kind of nihilism, which is like, well, then nothing means anything at all. Uh, but 
over time, he comes to this, this, this observation that he thinks the only thing that we can really say matters or the only thing that's really genuinely real about our lives is, is the will to power. And so what is needed for humanity then to overcome this potential nihilism is to master oneself, to use power to overcome one's own um, self-destruction and destruction of others, uh, to become what he called uh, the superhuman. And that is, that is the answer, if you like, in, in many respects for Nietzsche, it becomes self-mastery. So he says something like, shall I say? Oh. Which is what, uh, this is actually, thus spoke Zarathustra. What I just read is, is from a, a gay science, which was written earlier. Um, but in thus spoke Zarathustra, who's kind of a, he, he, he speaks his message through the words of this prophet. That, so it's kind of like a gospel. Thus spoke Zarathustra is like the writing of a gospel with a prophet with, he kind of have replacement beatitudes and, and so on. Um, I teach you the Superman. Man is something that should be overcome. The Superman is the meaning of the earth. Let your will say the Superman shall be the meaning of the earth. All gods are dead. Now we want the Superman to live. Let this be our last will one day at the great noontide. All right. So, um, There is this profound insight in Nietzsche, which is that Christianity, and in fact, you find this in Marx and you find this in a number of other social and, and, and social critics and philosophers and, and so on, and theologians really in the, in the 19th century, this criticism of what religion has become and the way in which it's used to essentially control people. So Nietzsche looks at, at religion and says, essentially religion is a, is a power discourse. It's a way of controlling people. Marx also said that, uh, religion is the opiate of the masses. You know, it's a way to essentially distract the people so that you can control them. So one of the reasons why socialist systems are so uh, anti-religion is because Marx uh, saw religion as being something which could be used to keep the people down. Give the poor religion and then they won't want change. Um, okay, so, so what's, what's a response to this, and uh, and maybe a typical Christian response, even to Nietzsche, is to sort of is is to react to him and say, "Well, you can't say that about God. Uh, don't don't say that about um, about my religion." Um, and even to, to sense that he's glorying in this death of God, but I don't think he is glorying in the death of God. He's observing it, and then he's saying, "And here's going to be the consequences of that. So, how do we respond to that change?" Um, but I still think our, our response is to say, well, God is not dead, actually. He's alive. That's what I grew up singing. Um, and yet, I think if we skip too quickly to that, then maybe we, we miss uh, something valuable in the conversation. So that's kind of the space we want to explore a little bit here. Um, so I want to suggest that there's a sense in which at the heart of the Christian faith is this kind of weird embrace of this idea of the death of God. Um, even if it's not all we want to say about God. And certainly tonight, we're not going to say all that we might want to say about God. We can just say a bit. I think we could, I'm gonna to suggest to you that we could agree with Nietzsche and with Marx and with a number of others that belief 
in a certain kind of Christian God, maybe this sort of super being up there who's pulling puppet strings, who we can get to do our bidding if we, usually if we're powerful, um, has been, that idea of God has been used to manipulate people, to oppress people, to control people, to keep people in their place. Um, powerful people using religious ideas to maintain systems of power. So then what's our response to that? Well, okay then, stuff the whole thing. <laughs> I'm walking away, me and Craig David. That's my third song reference for the day, if you were here this morning. Uh, um, but, I, but instead of walking away, what if we bent a little further into the idea? Um, there's a theolo- theologian I love called uh, Jürgen Moltmann, who uh, I've mentioned from time to time, if you've heard me talk. And one of the things he suggests is, is that we must come back to the cross at the centre of all Christianity. Um, in many ways, he, he, he agrees with this critique of Christian religion that we've just been pondering. Um, but his response is not a denial of God in a full and complete sense, but it is a reevaluation of what Christianity is about at all. And so Moltmann begins uh, all of his theology with the idea of the crucified God the fact that in Jesus, God dies on the cross. Um, Moltmann was a, prisoner of, a German prisoner of war who comes to Christian faith in a prisoner of war camp when he reads the words of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this sits at the heart of his conversion story. He says, here is, here is the story of someone who is my brother in suffering, who is my brother in the dark, who is my brother in the experience of God forsakenness. And so all of his theology spins out of this place of the death of God on the cross with Jesus. So we're gonna have, explore a bit of a conversation about this and see where we go. You all going okay? All right, so here's a, here is a discussion question for us. So one of the things that the Christian scriptures claim is that Jesus Christ is God with us in some kind of way. Whatever we might mean by that, uh, Emmanuel, for example, is one of the names given to Jesus and that translates as God with us. Uh, But Jesus dies on the cross. This is what we put above all of our churches, not this one. We've got a constellation, which is much more mysterious. But you know, if you, you you go past, you know, old church buildings, there's a cross above the door, which is a symbol of the death of Jesus. Uh, and if Jesus is God with us, does God die on the cross? And if so or not, uh, what is going on here? What could this mean? What should this mean for us? That might seem like a slightly mysterious question. And that's the intention because I'm just interested to see where this takes us. Cool? So let's have, just maybe with the two or three people around you, or four, you choose the number, uh, have a conversation around that question for a couple of minutes. Who found that a difficult question? Okay. It's kind of supposed to be uh, (laughs) in the sense that 
It's it's a difficult question. Did that clear things up? And that's the kind of profundity you come to formation for. I know um, this kind of this paradox sits right at the heart of the shocking nature of Christianity in the first century, actually. Um, so it's supposed to be a tough question. That's all I'm saying. It's supposed to leave you going. So any, anyone want to share any kind of particular insights or, or questions or absence of insights that came from their conversation? Anyone want to be happy to share any of that with the rest of us? Jesus Christ, God is with us, is more about um, us as in, uh, you know, Trinity people coming together and, um, you know, believing in God. And um, although he died on a cross, the Christianity didn't die. It was became a part of us and it was just so he could show the world, um, you know, he was... Uh, immortal and um, that uh, he still lives um, because if he had been somebody else it wouldn't have um, really uh, had the effect that it does have today Okay, cool, thank you Awesome, anyone else? Who are you pointing at, Laura? Your group, for whom you do not want to speak, is that how that's? Both of their heads went down as soon as you pointed at them. Do either of you want to say anything? Um, yeah, we just we just talked about how it's really it could be viewed as um, the way that God relates to humanity is it's really an act of um, God uh, relating to the. The really crap part. So it's it's God being um, identified with the religious outcast as the heretic, as the um, political outcast, um, being burned, uh, being crucified on a burning trash heap outside Jerusalem, and then ultimately God, life itself, being identified with death. So all good, bad, life, death distinctions kind of get turned on the head because God's identified with that. So I think it really. Um, helps us to uh, really live a look at all our structures and say that kind of judges that as this is a this is a dynamic that constantly asks us to critique and transform everything that we make. So yeah, God is God is dead is a paradox. So therefore, it, it's God's life filling up all the bits that we uh, count as dead. Yeah, very confusing. Awesome, thank you. Love it, Katarina. Um, we talked about um, that when, when Christ died on the cross, at the same time, the curtain ripped in the temple, which separated the temple from the Holy of Holies, which was in Old Testament times, you could only enter with much sacrifice and ceremony. And God, Christ said on the cross, it is, es ist vollbracht, how do you say in English? It's done. <laughs> and... Um, so we talked about that the idea of God died on the cross, that God invited through the death of Christ, invited people back into the relationship, a relationship to 
my mind, that was intended from the beginning. But the Old Testament people had, again, cre had created a religion around it and it, it tried to fit God into the cultural norms over the centuries and the norms at the time. And God had to come up with another way of saying, no, <laughs> I'm here, you know. Um, you have access to me always and all the time. So, yeah. Death of the idea of God. It's interesting, that idea, that the death of an idea of God. Um, something that actually captured uh, theologians in the mid-20th century. So uh, starting kind of with Bonhoeffer, who was a, another German uh, who was in prison for a different reason than Moltmann. Uh, so Bonhoeffer was uh, involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler. Um, but towards the end of his life, he writes some letters from prison and he begins to talk about the idea of a religionless Christianity. As a way of trying to respond to that, question of the, the, both the changing nature of society and, and its movement towards um, being religionless as, as Western secular society. And secondly, the idea of the, the, the death of God and Christ is somehow attached to the death of all sorts of religious ideas about God. Um, in fact, you know, one reading of the, the tearing of the curtain, I suppose, or the, or the veil from the holy place in the temple was that it's torn and you realise God wasn't in there. Um, all the, you know, uh, that idea of this God who is this kind of old dude hanging out and then you realise that's, that's not the vision of God that sits at the heart of Christianity. It's the, it's the crucified God, the paradox of the crucified God. Um, spinning out of Bonhoeffer comes, comes some others like Tillich and, and others. So Tillich reframes the notion of God as the idea of ground of all being. Uh, rather than a being, but being itself, as, as a way of trying to respond to that story, to, to that idea. Um, and, and a few theologians spun out of that, and, and uh, in the end, a Time magazine cover had the big question, is God dead? Uh, trying to get its head around what was happening within this movement of Christian theology in the mid-20th century. Yes. Any other thoughts, comments about that? No? Okay. Um, yes. Well, I guess in many respects, it's, it's, it's hard to answer that question because all of the information we have about Jesus is post-death. So... Uh, even though they write about him pre-death, they weren't written pre-death, if that makes sense. So everything we read about Christ is in reflection upon Jesus after the fact. Um, certainly Emmanuel uh, starts in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah who first uses the phrase, and so it becomes this pointing forward towards this, um, towards this figure who would be God with us. And so that identity is then uh, correlated with this Jesus figure who is, who is God with us. Um, Uh, so if we keep if we keep just pushing into this idea for a little bit, just we'll we'll stop before we get too depressed. But um, let me just read what I have here, and then uh, and then they'll take us towards a break. Cool. For Moltmann, the cross invites us to reflect on the idea that Christianity is not supposed to be just another religious system. 
It's not supposed to offer us solutions and rewards for right belief and right behaviour. Instead, we are confronted with the words of Jesus that sit at the heart of the Christian faith. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Very strange words to sit at the heart of a faith tradition. Um, In these words, we find that Jesus is our companion in suffering. We might say that if God is in Christ, then God knows the experience of what it feels like to to feel abandoned by God. That is the centre of the Christian story. God is in the place of abandonment, even supposed abandonment by God. So my suggestion is that Christianity is a protest against the vision of God as a super being out there somewhere turning his face away from our pain. God cries out in Christ against that kind of God. Um, So in a sense, our our journey into Christianity is a journey into that protest. Uh, In fact, not just toward God, but to anything that is set up in such a way that it uh, is used to manipulate us, to exclude us, to marginalise human experience, um, to leave people alone in their suffering. Uh, I want to finish this this half of tonight with a quote from Maltman and then uh, we'll have some, the second half's going to be much more discussion heavy. This is a long quote, so uh, I'll read it and then we'll ponder it over a cup of tea. The cross in the church symbolises the contradiction which comes into the church from the God who is crucified outside. Every symbol points beyond itself to something else. Every symbol invites thought. The symbol of the cross in the church points to the God who is crucified not between two candles on an altar, but between two thieves in the place of the skull where the outcasts belong outside the gates of the city. It does not invite thought, but a change of mind. It is a symbol which therefore leads out of the church and out of religious longing into the fellowship of the oppressed and abandoned. On the other hand, it is a symbol which calls the oppressed and godless into the church and through the church into the fellowship of the crucified God. Where this contradiction in the cross and its revolution in religious values is forgotten, the cross ceases to be a symbol and becomes an idol and no longer invites a revolution in thought, but the end of thought and self-affirmation. So, uh, yeah, there is this profound idea at the heart of Christianity that continues um, every time we create a system, Christianity says, and let's ask some questions of that, lest we make an idol out of it. Um, Because right at the heart of the Christian faith is this paradoxical experience of the fact that God is outside of the church. He's outside of the religious system, getting killed by the religious system. That's where God is. Um, But then those two who are being killed by the religious and political systems find themselves mysteriously with Christ, therefore in the church. So that's a good place to have a cup of tea. Yes, Greg. Yes. No one said yes to whether or not God died. Yeah. God can't die because God's immortal. <laughs> I guess we'd have to uh, we would have to define death, wouldn't we? 
Um, and in what sense does God experience death? Certainly many, um, there, were, there were people in the, in the second century in particular who said, look, Jesus cannot have been God because God can't suffer and die. Therefore, Jesus can't have been God. Uh, but the Christian claim is profoundly disturbing and yet uh, it's, it's disturbing to our sensibilities because it continues to claim that Christ is divine somehow and yet that Christ dies. Um, this is not to say that all that God is dies, but that's the paradoxical moment in, in, in which Christianity is born. And uh, Maltman says, in fact, the place where you'd imagine atheism begins is where Christianity actually uh, starts, um, which is the death of Christ on the cross. <sighs> yeah, who's like, well, this is, uh, this is a bit trippy and I don't quite know what to make of it. Does anyone feel like that? Um, I promise you, we're going to get a little more grounded into our uh, actual real human experience in the second half. So please don't leave at half time. If you're like, man, I don't even know what to make of this. That's okay. Uh, because we're going to continue the conversation. We're not just, this is not the end of the conversation. You all okay? So a few minutes break and then we're going to come back and head into a, a discussion which is much more related to our own experience. So I guess we could say that in the first half, um, we had a pretty uplifting time. Uh, in some sense, maybe the last part of that conversation, we could say that, that Jesus, essentially through what he says and does, blows up religion. And then the ultimate act of, of blowing it up is dying. Because that really, that really messes with the whole thing. Um, what I'd like to do in, in this half is to, to come back to this contemplation of Jesus on the cross. Now, there's this weird thing, right, which is where if we talk too much about Jesus dying, it starts to sound really heavy and kind of depressing. And yet, this is the very event that sits at the heart of the Christian faith. So we have to be able to talk about it, right? And sometimes I feel like, man, I've got to whip this back up into a positive moment. Uh, um, and, and, and in a sense, what I want to do very quickly is jump to Resurrection Sunday um, because then that makes me feel better about my life uh, and go, yeah, it's all okay. Yeah, good, 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 good. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> that makes me feel better. And yet there's something profound about sitting in this place of the experience of Jesus and letting it um, truly speak into my experience and confront me and challenge me with something rather than kind of glossing over it really quickly so that I can get to the bits that I'd rather talk about. Uh, and Paul himself says, you know, I, I decided I would preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. So I guess if we don't want to talk about it, we better find a different religion. Except that Jesus blows a religion up. So we don't even have a religion. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so I want to come back to this, um, this notion of Jesus on the cross and his cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, 
Because there's a real paradox in this, in this phrase, isn't there? And I've heard it interpreted one way for much of my Christian life. Uh, but it's not until recent, well, the last few years, I suppose, that I've gone, hang on a second. Um, I was brought up, really, I, or, or at least the environment I was in delivered me the message that the reason that Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me when he's on the cross is because all of my sin has, all of my sin has been put on him and God, who is holy, can no longer look at Jesus. So God turns his face from Jesus on the cross because of all of my filth that is on him. Uh, and so Jesus then suddenly experiencing the separation from God says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A very interesting interpretation of the, of, of the passage. Um, I suggest, I, I, don't think that's what's, I don't think that's what's going on here at all, but that's, that's the version I was, and it was, it was a great way to make me feel pretty bad, I'll, I'll say that. Because I was forced, and, and, and the older you get, the worse this contemplation becomes, to think of all the terrible, naughty things I've said and done and thought and whatever. And then to imagine all of that and to being, being laid upon Jesus and, and somehow the way it was always told is Jesus sort of becomes conscious of all of my sin now on him. And in fact, not just mine, but somehow he magically has, is experiencing all of the sins of everybody all like on him all at the same time. And I'm like, oh man, I, that's not good. I feel, bad for, I, feel, I feel bad for Jesus having to deal with just my stuff, let alone anybody else's. That's kind of, you know, that was my experience of it. And then what does it say about God? Because then God can't look at that. Because God's like, well, I'm really holy and that's horrendous. So I shall turn my face from Jesus and Jesus will experience separation from God. So that's one way of reading the passage. Um, perhaps we might suggest an alternative way to think about this is this idea that God is present in Christ and his experience of death. So the question I'd like us to discuss, so we're gonna jump straight into a discussion here is, well, it's two questions really, so... What are the implications of these two different interpretations for our own lives and experiences of God? And that's very much connected to the next question, which is, do, do again, I, I sort of said we'd be more uplifting in a second. I don't, I don't really mean that. Think about your own experiences of challenge or loss or pain uh, and where has God been or not for you in these moments? Because this very much relates to the first part of that question. Right? Um, does God turn his face away from Jesus on the cross, from Jesus' suffering and death? And if so, what would that mean for us? Or is God somehow paradoxically present in the death of Christ? And if so, what does that mean for us in our places of darkness? And how does that connect with your experience? Cool? Does the questions make sense? All right, so have a bit of a conversation about that before we have some kai. That's probably a conversation that could go on. Uh, and we'll have an opportunity over some dinner uh, if you're happy to stick around and eat and continue conversation. Um, and, and of course, even though, you know, each one of these sessions is in itself kind of a topic, um, each time there's no way we can capture everything that we're 
want to say or talk about. Church has been talking about for this for 2,000 years. Still isn't quite sorted it out. So um, we are entering into, oh, we've got it? Oh, good. Finally. Mark it down. Edge Kingsland, May 2018. It all got sorted out. Awesome. Um, So yeah, if you feel like this is a slightly unfinished conversation by the time we get to the end of it, it is. Good. Um, Is that all right? Does anyone have anything that, again, that came up from... Oh, yes. A a chorus of acclamation. Oh, you're just reading the Bible to us. (laughs) Not happy about it. (laughs) Not happy about it. Go on. Okay, no, I just... um, I knew it came from the Old Testament somewhere. So it's in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? And it goes on. So the words of the psalm are that which comes to mind for Jesus when he's on the cross. Um, This is the experience. And in fact, the protest that pokes its head through Scripture uh, a number of times. Uh, this protest against, this feeling of abandonment by God, and yet somehow that's caught up within the whole story. Um, yeah, any any comments, questions, thoughts? Yes, hello. Well, I... Oh, gosh. Um, I grew up with the same um, theology that you had that um, all my sin and everybody's sin was on Jesus when he died and that's why um, God had to turn his back on him and and therefore Jesus said, you know, why have you forsaken me? And so tonight, for the first time, I've actually had to think about that and think, well, okay, if that's um, not true, um, then why did Jesus say why have you forsaken me? And so I, I'm just thinking, and I'm thinking that maybe it was because he, and um, and this is still very flexible thinking in my, a very new idea in my brain, um, that maybe um, it's because it was a cry from his human heart to... Um, our forsaken kind of situation, our separateness from God and um, him relating to our feelings of um, being forsaken, you know, with the separation that goes that, that yeah, goes between us and God at times. Yeah, probably not very eloquently put. But then I have to reframe that old theology and come up with something new. So <laughs> that's what I'm trying to do. Well, it's a, it's a brave thing to do that on the spot with a microphone. So thank you for, for sharing. Yeah, awesome. Uh, someone else? Someone else want to share? Yes, Dietrich. Yeah, um, the, the God turns his back on Jesus because of his sin. The story of the flood came to mind and that, you know, the, the way I was taught around that story about 
God just being so fed up with the wickedness of mankind that God sent a great flood to kill everyone. Um, so yeah, that's just an interesting thought because I'm currently sitting in the, you know, no, God, Christ, I, I, I take comfort in knowing that Christ has um, been through suffering and loss and abandonment because that means that I can trust God even more because He know, God knows my human experience. Then I, yeah, this conversation is making me go and revisit some old stories that I've just been like, oh yeah, that's oh yeah, that makes sense. That's what the story is. But now it's like, is it though? What is that actually what happened? What is God trying to say there? What's the invitation? Yes, maybe we should do a series sometime on Old Testament stories that trouble us, <laughs> which is pretty much all of them. Uh, I think that'd be that'd be interesting. We could pick a few. That'd be fun. And by fun, I mean disturbing. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think one of the things we, without wanting to sort of answer that question as such, but I'll offer. Can I offer a thought in response to that? Um, I think one of the things that we see in Scripture is an evolving. Scripture is not flat in the sense that you just dive to it, into it at any point and you just pull out exactly the same ideas about God. But there is this um, evolution of thinking about God. So that's one thing. Another thing we might say is that um, the Hebrews were not the only people talking about a flood story. And the ancient Near East world had many versions of something like a flood story sent from the gods to kill people. But the Hebrew version is the only one that ended with a promise never to do it again. So one reading of that story might be to say that it's a retelling of a story with an attempt to provide a redemptive arc to it. <laughs> now, in its time, that redemptive arc. Now, further on, what we might find is that, in fact, Jesus tells us God is not actually like that at all, but at the time it's this, it's this attempt to retell the story in light of something that was trying to poke through about what God might really be like. That's one shot at thinking about the flood story. But. All right, any other thoughts, comments, questions? Yes, Hannah. Um, it's just a question. I'm just wondering about like Christ's choice of words, of like if... If it isn't, in fact, that God's turned his back on Jesus and it's more that God is present in his death, then what does the forsaken thing mean? I still can't wrap my head around that. Yeah. Um, yes, Linda. I wonder if um, because Jesus was fully human at the point of death his cry was where are you God like and I think the second question where we're invited to talk about our experiences our own experiences of loss and if we can recall anything in our own lives that have, has been really really hard and 
that might include a death, I'm sure that at that point all of us would say, where are you, God? And so was Jesus saying, where are you? You know? Um, The other thing is, um, if you believe that Jesus is God, then in some way, back to the first half of our night, God did die. If you believe that Jesus is God, which gives me great hope because I go, but like you, um, actually I can trust this God because he absolutely knows how it feels to die. Fully, <laughs> you know. So I, I think that Jesus was saying as a human, where are you, God? What the heck? You know, I feel forsaken, as I think we all would in our point of biggest despair. Maybe. Maybe. Just, just a maybe at the end, just a hedge your bets. Greg. Um, one of the things that strikes me about this, the, the idea of the cross is not just the actual forensic details of what happens, but this beautiful idea of Jesus reframing how God sees humans and reframing the uh, primitive consciousness that has grown up under an idea that God demands a sacrifice in order to be appeased because of our sinfulness. So we've, we've, we've bought into a primitive consciousness that runs all the way through the Old Testament that says, well, the gods are angry. Fundamentally, they're angry at humans because humans are terrible, crappy things and we do bad stuff. So in order to appease the gods, something has to die. Let's kill animals. Oh, well, first of all, they killed children, but then they went to animals. And, and then Jesus comes along and says, look, the whole system is stuffed. Uh, God's never needed you to kill something in order to appease him. Uh, and I think that's the first thing it is for me. The second thing, uh, in order for us to understand how God sees us grappling with our sense of closeness and distance from God, because I say that all the time. The psalm that uh, they read out, 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is actually fundamentally the cry of the human heart in the deepest seat of pain. When you're in trauma and loss and pain um, and suffering, um, everything about religion tries to appease that, whereas God says, no, I'm in it with you. Um, And you should say that. You should have moments where you feel the forsakenness of God because it's what a human needs to feel in order to reconnect with this God who's present with us in the suffering. I mean... And if you can't, if you, if you could, in your deepest point of suffering, you can't say, God, where are you? Then I wonder if you're really suffering enough. You, you, you know what I mean? Because um, you know, it's, it's not just about the doubt of God, it's about the presence of God. I think there's another level of suffering where you start to doubt that there is a God and that's when you're really entering into the spirit of the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it doesn't say God turned his back on Jesus. No, it doesn't say anything about God. It says something about Jesus. It says the, the trauma of the moment, the most traumatic death, in order to fix a system that was stuffed right from the start. And this, you know, it was just a thought. <laughs> 
it's interesting to reflect on the, like I love to contemplate uh, the idea of presence, right? And, um, and so that's like super lovely. Um, and yet when you think about serious experiences of suffering and pain, probably the last thing you feel like doing is being like, oh God, I just know you're so present with me right now. Uh, that's not what comes from your lips, you know. What comes from your lips is, where, where are you, God? You've, you've forsaken me, God. And, um, and this mysterious idea that at the centre again of Christian faith is this figure who says, I know what that feels like. Um, that some, some would suggest if we were to take this idea of the divine Jesus seriously or that, that somehow God is, is uniquely present in Jesus, that God can genuinely then say, I know what it feels like to feel like you've been abandoned by God. Um, and that's a, that's a tumble turn or two. Uh, God can genuinely say, I know what it feels like to die. And so the writer of Hebrews can talk about this, this high priest who can genuinely empathise with all of our sufferings and we kind of go, oh yeah, yeah, because Jesus knew what it was like to be tempted, but then he said no. Um, but that's a, that's a shallow reading of that, right? Jesus enters fully into the experience of, of death with us, yes. Okay, last thought and then we'll, we'll finish. Just from what you said and what Greg just said, um, I opened up my thinking um, in the sense that I, I can definitely go with that whole second um, part where I have had experiences in my life where I did feel abandoned and I always feel in those moments of feeling abandoned that I'm not a good enough Christian, you know. If I had more faith, if I had prayed more, I should, I should in those moments, should have had the gumption or whatever to hold on to God and the idea of God. And I, tonight I... For the first time, I'm beginning to understand that it's okay to feel abandoned at times. It is part of, it's actually central to the message of Christ. So just because I look at it retrospectively, God doesn't demand of me that I now always and forever hold a, a faith in every moment. That my moments of abandonment are also part of my walk and it's okay I'm not a bad person in that moment because God came to I don't know I'm probably saying something really obvious that's become obvious to me again for the first time <laughs> yes okay last last thought <laughs> you might not want to oh. <laughs> 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 um, so if these are the two interpretations we're working with of Jesus dying on the cross. Um, that one repulses me because of suffering. Um, uh, an experience I had of suffering at a younger age and then I was like, oh, I'm not. It's because I don't. It's because God has turned his back on me. Well, I need to pray more, da, da, da. And it has formed this kind of monster of bad faith, um, which has died over the last 
three years or so. And it's it's like, it's great. It's like, ah, oh, things that, when bad things happen, it's just a bad thing happening. And when a good thing happening, it's not because God's smiling at me, it's just a good thing. And then, so I go, I look at that one, I go, well, that one, where I'm at, if there was a third way, God was not with Jesus on the cross. Jesus was a man. We said he was God. I look at that one and I go, that one also frustrates me because it lets me, if I lean into it, not care about people. It lets me go, that person going through suffering, God's with you. So you're good. But the this kind of middle place of, um, I think I find some uh, solace in God is with us, Emmanuel, as in God with us, us with God. We are God, God is us, and that I have found the closest thing to God being the people around me and people like this and this who have physically been there in my suffering. And that's the third way. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Yeah, this is a good place to finish, I think. You said it, you didn't think it was, but I think it is. Which is one of the profound insights, I think. uh, Sorry, we've gone a little over time. But one of the profound insights that that is made by the earliest followers of Jesus is that the presence and love of God is found in the presence and the eyes of the other. And this is why they can't separate God's love and love for God with, uh, with one another and the presence of another to you and you to another. That is in fact where the presence of God in many respects is most profoundly felt and experienced. Um, it is not some super being up in the sky who says, now I shall give you a little feeling of presence. Um, Jesus blows up that system in, in a, of that kind of old guy up there sprinkling, sprinkling magic dust. Um, but that the presence of God actually emerges in the love that we have for one another. Uh, and that the presence we show to those who find themselves on the outside of the gates of the city, to use kind of an old Jerusalem phrase of of where Christ is crucified. Uh, We are to be found out there also. So, that's a place to finish. Uh, It's dinner time. So can I pray for us? And uh, I don't even know what to pray after that. (laughs) Uh, Oh, some of you are like, really? Come on, man. Um, but I think it'd be a good good way to, to ground ourselves again uh, before we. I'll, Linda's got a couple of things to say, and then we'll have dinner. God, um, may you continue to disrupt our neat and tidy ideas of you. May we find ourselves confronted and challenged and 
drawn into the mystery of who you are and what it means to live in this world that we find ourselves. Would you somehow mysteriously uh, work in us, be present in us, in a way that compels us beyond ourselves to be the presence of God for another? That we might find you our companion outside the walls of the city. Whether we feel abandoned or whether we find ourselves with those who do, we turn around and we see Jesus also present there. Help us to continue to know what it means to follow that kind of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>